0: Well, good morning, everyone. You have a change of face this morning. It's not Keith Ganser here, but Glenn Taylor. And it's my privilege to share with you a sermon on World Mission Sunday. And there will be an outline that will be uh, appearing. uh, And I hope that um, I don't compete with my own PowerPoint. So if you have a way of enlarging me and making the PowerPoint a little bit smaller, that might be easier. I find it hard to uh, watch and follow along with somebody who's the size of a postage stamp on my screen. The famous missionary scholar, Bishop Leslie Newbegin gave an address at a thing called the Overseas Missionary Study Center. Actually, it's not the Overseas Missionary Study Center. It's almost as though that's a bad word. It's called the Overseas Ministries Study Center in New Haven, Connecticut. And he wrote the following. Whatever may or may not have been the sins of our missionary predecessors, the commission to disciple all the nations stands at the center of the church's mandate. And a church that forgets this or marginalizes it forfeits the right to the titles Catholic and Apostolic. The truth is that the gospel escapes domestication, retains its proper strangeness, its power to question us only when we're faithful to its universal, supranatural, supracultural nature. He continues, The contemporary embarrassment about the missionary movement of the 19th century is not, as we like to think, evidence that we have become more humble. It is, I fear, much more clearly evidence of a shift in belief. It is evidence that we were less ready to affirm the uniqueness, the centrality, the decisiveness of Jesus Christ as universal Lord and Savior. The way, by following whom the world is to find its true goal. The truth, by which every other claim of truth is to be tested, and the life, in whom alone life in its fullness is to be found. Whatever may or may not have been the sins of our missionary predecessors, the commission to disciple all the nations stands at the center of the church's mandate, says Newbegin. and he's undoubtedly right. So on this occasion of World Mission Sunday, it's appropriate that we take a look at the great commission that was given by Jesus to his disciples at the end of Matthew's Gospel. And I want to uh, begin Uh, right at the most important part of it, and that's by reading again, in a colloquial translation, the Great Commission. Sometimes when you hear something in a slightly different translation, it has a way of impressing itself upon you. So this is adapted from my favorite commentator on Matthew, Frederick Dale Brunner. He says, Now the eleven disciples came to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus commanded them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him though there were those who doubted. And Jesus stepped forward and spoke to them, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So move out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep absolutely all that I commanded you. And look, I myself am right there with you all the days, even to the consummation of history. So that's the passage that we're gonna focus on this morning. And I must confess that uh, by the time I came to the end of my preparation, I realized that I had given somewhat short shrift to the actual uh, commission itself. Uh, Not totally, uh, but with a a measure of intention because um, I think most of us are quite familiar with the words of the Great Commission itself. So one of my purposes this morning is for us to look at the background of the Great Commission and also to look at the role that it plays in the Gospel of Matthew and also um, some of the assurances that can be given to us uh, as we consider following the Great Commission. So I want to invite you to follow along in the uh, in the outline which will be popping up in the PowerPoint uh, thanks to uh, Stephen. But before I come to the Great Commission itself, Um, I want us to look at two background considerations. Now I suppose to the dubious person, or the one who is nervous about missionary involvement, they might be tempted to say, well, this is, what, four verses in a gospel? Not all that important. Not so. Uh, This passage is important for a number of reasons. One scholar by the name of Harnack has called it um, a masterpiece. Uh, One cannot say anything or greater more in 40 words about the person, greatness, and future work of Jesus. More importantly, and this is something that's not particularly well known, I suppose, it is, in fact, a summary of the message of the Gospel of Matthew. Another scholar writes, These words, perhaps more than any others, distill the outlook and various emphases of the Gospel. Another notes, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen to 20, the actual words of the commission, is the key to understanding the whole book. He continues, Here we find Christology and discipleship, ecclesiology and righteousness, emphases familiar from the earlier parts of the gospel. Continuing, these final five verses not only conclude chapters 26 to 28, the Passion narrative, but also serve as the conclusion to the narrative framework of the entire gospel, since it stresses authority and teaching. Emphases found in every section of the entire gospel. So in other words, the Great Commission is not just a few verses in Matthew. It is Matthew in a nutshell. And that's all the more reason to follow us this morning. What you're getting is a snapshot uh, of the Gospel of Matthew um, in, in a small piece. Well, is it only at the end of Matthew? Well, yes and no. The Great Commission itself is, in fact, reworded in various ways at the end of the other Gospels as well. So we find in Luke chapter 24, verse 47, an admonition that repentance for the forgiveness of sins be proclaimed in his name, To all the nations. And in John, we find in chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus saying, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. And similarly, in the long ending to Mark chapter 16, which may have borrowed from Matthew, we read in verse 15, Go into the whole world and preach the gospel to every creature. So important is the Great Commission that it has been compared to the great Jewish Shema, the Hear, O Israel. And Lohmeyer has said just as the Shema was the Old Testament's fundamental legislation in short form, so now the Great Commission is the New Testament's. The New Testament's fundamental legislation in short form. Someone else has noticed, and I think rightly so, that the Great Commission is a commission and a mission that is greater than anything else ever undertaken on earth and when you think of its influence it's hard to challenge so i want you to come and explore this magnificent summation of the teaching of jesus according to matthew the gist of which can be found in other gospels and which forms the trajectory to the book of acts as well Thinking about Acts, recall that in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, a commission like this is given again by Jesus, but just prior to his ascension. The background is that Jesus orders his disciples to remain in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Friends, we certainly need the influence and power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill the Great Commission. And then we read in verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Samaria and the end of the earth. And that going out that is modeled in the words, Jerusalem, Samaria, and the ends of the earth actually forms an outline for the entire book of Acts. You see the word going out first in Jerusalem, then in Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. So we have an exciting venture before us this morning, and I'm glad you've come along for the journey. But if you notice the outline, I'm going to make a digression. And at first the digression is going to seem a little bit irrelevant, at least to the Great Commission, though it's not. But the consolation is that the two things that I want to point out about prophecy in the New Testament are I'm actually among the most helpful for understanding the gospels as a whole. So in our digression this morning, in addition to talking about the importance of this passage, which we've already done, I want to say a word about prophecy in the New Testament. And on the heading in your outline, I have a fancy phrase called inaugurated eschatology. And what that means is future stuff that has already happened. I think probably the best way to orient ourselves to this question, and you'll realize that it's closer to the heart than it might seem, is if I were to ask you a trick question, and the trick question could go like this. Has the kingdom of God come already, or is it yet to come? Seems like it has to be one or the other, doesn't it? Well, if you were to answer, it's come already, then I could say, well then why did our Lord teach us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come? And if you were to say that it is is coming in the future, then I could say, why does Jesus announce that the kingdom of God is upon you? And why did John the Baptist say it was about to unfold in Jesus, and that it does in the ministry of Jesus? So there's something that's really helpful here to think about in relation not only to Matthew and our look at the Great Commission, but in relation to the Gospels as a whole. And it's this idea that a piece of the future in the life and ministry of Jesus has come into the past uh, the first century so the future has broken into the present and so when we think about uh, the gospels we're kind of in between the times it's as though um, the pot has been stirred and we have these future elements that are here and realized in the incarnation and ministry of jesus christ so as we're going soon to find out we're going to find out that the great commission is actually in fulfillment of prophecy And it has uh, been the unfolding of prophecy. You might remember a few weeks ago, there was a little girl uh, who was walking along the shore of um, Wales, the coast of Wales. Uh, At least she was from Wales. I'm not sure whether it was the Welsh shore or not. But anyway, she came across a fossil, and it was one of the best found little foot impressions of a mini dinosaur. And of course, there was great excitement. Why? Because this piece of the past had kind of stepped into the present and had captured everyone's attention. Well, that's a good way to think about what Jesus is doing in the Gospels. This future figure, this, this one who is responsible for the, the, the full reign of God in the end of time has come into the world and has come and began to unleash and unfold the message of the kingdom of God. So we have what's called inaugurated eschatology or future stuff that is already here and changing the world, and surely the gospel is part of that. Then secondly, we have a thing that I've called multiple recyclings of prophecy. Well, let me just say uh, by way of explanation that what I'm not talking about here is a problem that you might have noticed. Um, sometimes when we think about the Antichrist, for example, people will say, well, Nero was an Antichrist, um, Antiochus Epiphanes IV was maybe an Antichrist, Um, or um, the Antichrist is yet to come. Well one of the things that we find about Old Testament prophecy is that often there's an initial near horizon historical occurrence that is filled with all kinds of historical details that are particular to the time. But this prophecy has an afterlife and it's almost as though these prophecies continue to move in cycles forward and forward. So in Daniel chapter 7, which we're going to take a look at in a minute because of its relevance to the Great Commission, we find that there's a prophecy that Daniel received that has particular reference uh, to uh, within a few centuries after the time that he lived. But we'll see in Matthew's gospel that Jesus understands himself to be a fulfillment of that prophecy. And yet that prophecy is going to be fulfilled again when the Son of Man comes a second time. So, um, Uh, The Spirit of God uh, was in the recycling business, as it were. So uh, we shouldn't be surprised to find that there is more than one fulfillment of many of these Old Testament passages. Well, okay, that sets the stage for our beginning to look at an important and an encouraging prophecy for the Gospel of Matthew and the Great Commission. And that is in Daniel chapter 7, where a reference is made, and we'll turn there in a minute, where a reference is made to the Son of Man and also where reference is made to the authority of the Son of Man. Now, if you remember Matthew's Gospel, you will remember that there are many occasions in Matthew's Gospel when Jesus claims to be the Son of Man and to have authority. For example, he said, uh, so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. um, He told the man to get up and walk. Um, So Jesus as the Son of Man has authority. And as we come to uh, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, we'll notice that there's language that picks up again on this passage in Daniel 7, where the Son of Man is described as a heavenly figure who's going to come into the world and who's going to receive authority from God and thereby have dominion over the whole course of the world. And what does this man do with the authority that he's been given from on high but to give us? the Great Commission. Jesus's first agenda item in his new presidency over the universe is to commission you and me to go and make disciples of all nations. Let me set the stage for us in Daniel chapter seven for just a moment. Daniel has a vision of his own now in chapter seven. The vision is of four beasts which come up out of the sea. The first three are like known animals. But the fourth is a grotesque creature with ten horns, one of whom is singled out for special mention. Now more will be said about this in a minute, but at this point in the recounting of this vision in Daniel 7, the focus changes to the throne room of God, evidently in heaven, and to the awesome splendor of God. God is described as the Ancient of Days, and he is said to uh, have lightning flashing forth from him, and his hair is as white as snow. Uh, you should maybe take notice at that, at that moment, because in Matthew chapter 28, verse 3, the angel who appeared to the women at the empty tomb was said to have clothing that was as white as snow, and he flashed lightning. So it's as though he was one of the angels who was attending the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7 when the Son of Man vision was given. <clears throat> well, this figure of named God is called the Ancient of Days, A number of thrones are set up, But the Ancient of Days alone takes his seat in order to judge the beasts. But then the scene is further interrupted when the kingdom and authority of those beasts is suddenly cut off. And authority is given to one like a son of man. So as Stephen read for us earlier, we saw how chapter verse 13 says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, that is God. And then we read words that are familiar from the Great Commission. And to him was given dominion, and glory, and kingdom, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Now there's a variant version to the Septuagint of Daniel 7 which actually says exactly what it says in the beginning of the Great Commission. Authority is given to Jesus. Authority is given to the Son of Man. So Jesus sees himself as the fulfillment of this prophecy. And if we were to look back at a few chapters earlier in the uh, the Gospel of Matthew, we would find that there are places where Jesus is picking up on this theme of the Son of Man. And what seems to be happening is that uh, there is a kind of a script that's emerging. And the script goes like this, and it's one of the cycles of the prophetic fulfillment. At a time when a foreign power like the Romans are brutally oppressing the people of God, and here especially the Messiah, who must personally suffer during the process, The Messiah ends up, despite all appearances, triumphing over this monstrous enemy and being given the authority the enemy kingdom had and more. He's given all authority and inaugurates a kingdom of his own together with his people that will not be destroyed. So you might recall that when uh, Jesus is being questioned um, at his trial, the high priest says to him, "Um, tell us, um, are you the Messiah? And Jesus goes on and He says, well, you have just said so, but I say to you, I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is announcing, as soon as I suffer at the hands of the Romans and as soon as I am killed, then the time will be for me to receive authority from God and then I can have my way and my way includes commissioning my disciples. My friends, if you're looking for any kind of a reason to dare to share the Great Commission, I can't think of a better grounding than this. You have been commissioned by one to whom God has given authority over the entire world. So the Great Commission is not just a few verses at the end of Matthew, it's actually kind of a paradigm shift in all of history. And God's throne speech, Jesus' throne speech, includes a speech which begins by reminding us that he has the authority to do this, and now he sends us out with these words, Go and make disciples of all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded them. So there's wonderful news here, friends. There's also a little bit of an encouraging note, if you were to look at the details of Daniel chapter 7. And if you were to look at verse 27, when the angel is telling Daniel again what is the business with the fourth beast, uh, it says in verse 27, then sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. Uh, we should be expecting to read here, all of the authority, all all of the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the Son of Man. But to hear, we are included. So we are business partners in this arrangement. The authority has been given to us, and although the authority that we have is derivative, it's nonetheless uh, associated with the authority of Jesus. So the good news, my friends, is that the Great Commission is not something that... uh, God forbid we should feel uh, embarrassed about fulfilling uh, but we should have a sense of joy that we're participating in the work of God and we are fulfilling the mission that God has given us. If we had a little more time, which we don't, we could go back and look at a few verses in Matthew where Jesus talks about uh, sharing the kingdom with us and he says to his disciples that they will sit on the the 12 uh, thrones of the tribes of Israel And that we will receive a great reward if we are prepared to go into the mission field. And whatever we give up in order to go into the mission field, as it were, we will receive a hundred times more. So, now let us come then to uh, a look at the Great Commission itself. And the outline is given in verses 16 through 20. And in verse 16, there is the meeting place. In verse 17, there is the meeting itself. And then in verses 18 to 20, we have the commission itself. And there are three aspects of the commission. And for the sake of uh, convenience, I've tried to give them a letter C. The credentials behind the commission, verse 18, and that's what we've been talking about. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, says Jesus. The content of the commission, which is the part that we know quite well, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching obedience to all Christ's teachings. And then we have comfort emanating from the commission. So let's go back and focus on some highlights that might uh, not have occurred to us uh, before. And I want to focus on, first of all, the meeting place. The meeting place. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples came to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus commanded them, or to the mountain which Jesus designated for them. Now there's quite a bit going on here. The first thing to notice that I think is a source of encouragement is that we have 11 disciples. Um, Already the mission is one short of a full load. Now we have some jokes about people whose mental capacities might be one brick short of a full load or whatever, but here the disciples are uh, one short. And of course, Judas is no longer with them. So we've got 11. So from the beginning, we can understand that we're certainly not having to be a perfect mob here. Um, Someone said the number 11 limps. Uh, It's not perfect like 12. The church that Jesus sends into the world is 11ish, imperfect, fallible. Yet Jesus uses this imperfect church to do his perfect work. And I love the fact that it includes Simon Peter. And indeed, all of the disciples turned away from Jesus. But never mind, the 11 are there. Judas has done himself in, but we got 11, and we're ready to go. The second thing to notice is the word disciples. I think if we were honest, we might think that the Great Commission, those missionary heroes and such, were to be uh, Christian leaders, bishops, cardinals, spiritual giants. But this is a very ordinary word. Disciple is someone who decides to follow Jesus. No other credentials are needed. Not a great education, not super intellect. Look at the 11. Some of them were the equivalent of um, blue-collar workers in a a remote area, uh, fishermen in a small town in the uh, northern shore of Galilee. So those are the disciples. There are 11 of them, and they are the ones who, you'll notice, come to Galilee. Now the very fact that they come to Galilee is a good sign. Someone wrote, the call to come to Galilee was the call to believe the Lord and his resurrection enough to make a trip to see him. It was a call to trust Jesus in an almost Abrahamic way, for it was a call to meet someone who had died and so might not be there. And actually, in the authority that I'm quoting, they compare Hebrews 11, several descriptions of faith. And one of the things that Keith has been pointing out to us over the past several weeks is that faith is this extra kind of a sense that you have, that there's a vision and a purpose that lies beyond what we can see, that it guides us as we move forward in faith. It takes courage. It takes, to use a perfectly good but not often used word in a sermon, guts. The faith of the disciples still has this element of risk in it, the scholar continues, still daring to believe that the Lord will be where he calls us to be. In Matthew's gospel, faith is frequently and quite simply obedience to Jesus' command. So it's kind of ironic and delightful in a way that our text begins with the same sort of obedience that is called for in the Great Commission itself, one that calls us to move out in faith, to do Jesus's bidding and to believe that the Christ will be there wherever we go in his name. These people made a journey of what, 100 miles to see someone who, as far as they knew, last they checked was dead. That took faith and their faith paid off. Then they go to Galilee. Jesus had told them to go to Galilee. And I think that's important. Galilee isn't just a beginning place of Jesus's mission, but Galilee symbolizes kind of the gate of entry for the Gentile world in both the Old and New Testaments. So, Galilee is a point where Jesus' commission is highlighted for the inclusion of the Gentiles of which we are. And so, um, Galilee is a particularly uh, telling and um, um, exciting place. It's the place where the light dawns on the Gentiles and makes possible the mission to the Gentiles. And then there's a reference to the mountain. If you read Matthew carefully, you're surprised when you come to chapter 28 because the angel announces, okay, tell the disciples to go to Galilee. And then when we come to verse 16, we realize that this was a mountain that Jesus had appointed his disciples to meet him at. And we said, where did I read that in the gospel? Well, Jesus had clearly indicated it to the disciples, but it wasn't indicated, so far as I recall anyway, at any point before. Going to the Galilee was... Uh, but the mountain is something new. So what is this mountain business? Well, it's interesting to note that I, um, uh, I have a colleague, Terry Donaldson, some of whom you might know, who teaches Old Testament or New Testament at Wycliffe. And he wrote a book on Jesus and the mountain in Matthew. So I emailed Terry, and here's what he said. In my book, I dealt with six passages, each of which recounted a theologically significant scene that took place on a mountain. The Temptation, the Sermon on the Mount, the Feeding of the Four Thousand, the Transfiguration, the Olivet Discourse, and the Great Commission, which he calls Consummation Mountain. He continues I argued a couple of things. First, that each passage, that is, each mountain episode scene, dealt with one or more of a collection of key theological themes. We've seen this before. The Great Commission is kind of a a constellation of these. Christology is emphasized on mountains. Ecclesiology is emphasized on mountains. And eschatology, future stuff, is emphasized on mountains. And then Donaldson notes that all of these themes were gathered up in one way or another at the great mountain of consummation, the mountain where the Great Commission is given. And then thirdly, and something that I hadn't known before, uh, there are lots of ways in which I didn't understand this before, but this was particularly noteworthy for me, is that Donaldson notes that Jesus appearing on these mountains is an association with Zion. And it's as though Jesus is saying by appearing on these mountains that I am the replacement of the temple. I am the new incarnate, risen, portable, transferable through the presence of the Holy Spirit, Zion. And there are all kinds of promises that are given about Mount Zion that are astonishing. Mount Zion is the place of eschatological fulfillment. That means the fulfillment of predictions about the future, of end-time teachings such as Isaiah 2, 2 2-4, of the eschatological banquet, of the enthronement of the Messiah, the restoration of Israel, and the eschatological pilgrimage of the nations. I can't help but quote just one of these passages to give you a sense about the connection between this mountain location and Jesus' great commission. Isaiah 2, 2 2-4. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob, He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion. You sense a kind of enthusiasm that these people have about coming to the mountain, about coming to Zion, and about um, learning more about God. And as I thought about the enthusiasm in Isaiah chapter 2, I couldn't help but think of the fact that sometimes we're reluctant to share the gospel, to make disciples, because... We kind of are nervous about it. Uh, We feel as though it might be an imposition. But my friends, think of the people you know who have come to know the Lord and ask them, would you change that for anything? And they'll say, no. Whoever introduced me to the gospel might have been a little bit uh, tacky, a little bit forceful maybe, hopefully not. But I wouldn't wouldn't trade their doing that and their having the nerve to do that for anything because now I know Christ. I know what it is to be a follower of Christ. So that's a little bit more about the mountain. The mountain as well is, of course, um, a symbol of Mount Sinai. Jesus in Matthew's gospel is clearly the new Moses. He is a, a, a deified Moses. Um, and so here Jesus decides that he's going to go up onto the mountain. And the Son of Man who came with the clouds is now giving teaching to his followers. Uh, Jesus takes the role of God. And a God who gives his law, his testament to the people of God. And that testament, as we've seen already, is encapsulated in the Great Commission. One last thing about the mountain. Many people suggest that the mountain was the Mount of Beatitudes. You may have seen this in the, uh, you may have noticed this in the translation that that I gave of verse 16. It's the mountain which Jesus designated for them or the mountain where Jesus um, commanded or taught them. So um, when Jesus gives the Great Commission, he's doing it perhaps, not for sure, but perhaps on the mountain where he gave the summary of his teachings in the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous of all. And so there's kind of a, a not a violent imperialistic colonial tone to what we're taking to the nations, but it's one of humility, it's one of good news for the poor, um, it's one of a righteousness that is radical and life transforming. So that is, in terms of looking at our, at our outline, that is the meeting place. What about now the meeting in verse 17? Well, verse 17, indicates that when they came to Jesus, they worshiped. And then most translations say, but some doubted. And there's been a lot of ink spilled about this, and you read a lot of commentaries where people are nervous about the worshipers also doubting. And they'll say, well, maybe there were two different groups. You know, there was a bunch of worshipers, and then there were other people there who were the doubters. But when you look at the text of Matthew itself, uh, it doesn't say, but, very strongly. Uh, it it re- responds with the same words that verse 16 began. These people went up to uh, Galilee, uh, and now these people worship, and, and it adds, and these people doubted. So um, I think whether you think that all or some or none of these worshippers were doubters probably depends upon your own spiritual life. I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to imagine that the worshipers were also doubters. Um, I think that uh, doubt is the flip side of faith. So when they came and worshiped, they also doubted. Friends, this isn't a strong word for doubt. It doesn't mean um, it's one where, you know, they, they, they were just hard-hearted. This is a word that's used only once elsewhere in Matthew's gospel anyway. And it's when, Jesus, when Peter's walking on the water and he's doing great, but at one moment he doubts and he begins to sink. So it's kind of a wavering. It's kind of a hesitation. And um, I like to think that uh, those of us who are called and commissioned, are definitely worshipers of Jesus, but we are wobbly worshipers. We are uh, bumbling uh, worshipers in some ways. But it's nice to know that uh, we're not written off as a result of that. And that um, as one commentator said, the best way to deal with doubt is just to get on with the business of fulfilling the Great Commission. You know, do what you're asked to do. Live in obedience as you live in faith as a worshiper, as you live sometimes in doubt as a worshiper. So there's an important lesson there. Notice also in verse 17 that there's very little dialogue given. When it says that they saw Jesus, you can imagine, you know, some of them probably were just, you know, they would have come unglued. They would have been overjoyed. There would have been exchanges of greetings. There would have been tears. There would have been hugs. But nothing is said other than they worshipped, but some doubted. And that, most commentators argue, I think rightly so, is to cast the light totally upon the commissioning words of Jesus. What's important here is that they saw him, they worshipped, yes, they doubted, but now sit down and listen, because Jesus is about to give the great throne speech, which is the substance of the great commission itself. The other thing to notice about the meeting is that we've learned what the worshippers were doing, Uh, They were were doubting, they came forward and they they, they were worshiping, but they were, you know, there there was a lot to process. Well, what's Jesus doing? He doesn't say, fear not. He doesn't say, oh you a little doubt. Jesus, in the colloquial translation I read before, he steps forward. He steps forward. Jesus comes and he approaches them. That's a sign of pastoral concern. That's a sign of empathy. That's a sign of love, and it's, a, it's a, a wonderful place for that to happen, because if there are any apprehensions that we have about fulfilling the Great Commission, Jesus steps forward. But now the light casts entirely on the Great Commission itself. We're going to spend less time on the Great Commission because um, I think um, we know it. But let me return again to the issue of authority, because I think that that's what's important for us to walk away with today. My main goal in giving this sermon, apart to provide some background, is to encourage and to empower us, to give us the courage and strength um, to, uh, to step forward as we've been commanded to do. And we get that by one whose credentials are impeccable. So we've come to section number three on the Great Commission. We've talked about... Um, um, something about the, the um, or, uh, sorry, we've had the meeting place, we've had the meeting and now we come to the Great Commission itself. And first of all, the credentials behind it. All authority Jesus had. He had authority in his earthly ministry, as we saw when he announced that he had the authority to forgive sins. But now it is all authority, and more than Satan offered him in chapter 4 verse 8. Now, by the way of suffering and obedience, he has received far more than Satan could offer, all authority in heaven and on earth. Authority is, in fact, Matthew's favorite noun for describing Jesus. One commentator suggests that the word approaches the meaning of deity for executive power. I mean, who has God's executive power but somebody who is close to God or God himself? Jesus is both. And he means that this chief executive officer of the universe, the one who's in complete control of the world, is giving us this command. Uh, It could not come from uh, one with greater credentials. It comes from the one who's got the whole world in his hands. It comes from the one who's king of kings and lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Ephesians 1, 22 to 23 reminds us of this when it says, And God has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. There isn't any other power of authority to speak of. There's nothing that is not under his universal lordship, be it the state, the natural law, culture, nervous about sharing the gospel, you name it. He is Lord over everything. He is Lord of all life. And it's the one who's been given that lordship and that authority that commands us to go and make disciples. So the credentials are impeccable. Let's look uh, at, uh, and with this, we're going to have to be a little bit more selective, which is fine. Um, In the content of the commission, let's notice three things. And there's something to notice about the syntax of the, of the Great Commission, and I think it's just important to point out that the main verb here is the word make disciples. And in Greek, there's usually one main verb, and then sometimes, often, I'm not sure, other words that kind of hang from it. Well, the word make disciples is the central one here, and then there are three participles that hang from it. And it's something like going, make disciples, make disciples, by baptizing, and by teaching. So the word make disciples is, uh, is the one that's central. And let me just say a little bit more about making disciples. Well, it's interesting here that the word used is not one that's typical for missionaries. It doesn't say um, make preachers, convert, win, and the like. Bruner describes it as a slower, lower-profile verb, an almost scholastic, schoolish word. Disciple. He continues, disciples means to make students of, to bring to school, to educate, or in the modern terms, to mentor or apprentice. The word pictures students sitting around a teacher more than it does penitents kneeling at an altar, an educational process more than an evangelistic crisis, a school more than a revival. Someone else writes, Jesus wants to create intimate communities, close churches places where people live in good fellowship with each other. Uh, Roger Ong, you're listening, I know, uh, faithfully. I think this means that you have good job security as one who's in charge and oversees a small group ministry at Christ the King. This is at the heart of what Jesus is asking us to do. Uh, Form small groups. Uh, Don't just evangelize, but teach. You know, I can't help but rejoice when I know that the movie Jesus has been seen by millions and millions of people. It was an evangelistic movie that covered the life of Jesus according to the Gospel of Luke, and a lot of money has been put into sending that film around the world, and millions of people have seen it and have been evangelized. But my worry is is that there's a second stage that did not happen that may actually uh, put those people in jeopardy, and that's the second stage of discipling. Surely I know there were lots of follow-up discipleship efforts, but um, evangelism in itself is not enough. I worry sometimes that evangelism without follow-up perhaps immunizes people from the significance of the gospel and what it means to be a follower of Jesus, because they've heard the word. But as the parable of the sower tells us, the seed has fallen on on shallow ground, as it were. So, we are to uh, disciple-make, we are to baptize into the name of the triune God. Baptism, uh, into the name of, is kind of a weird expression. And on the outline, I have, uh, I've just got the parentheses in the wrong place. I say, baptize or graft into the triune God. It's baptized or graft into the triune God. And I think a w- helpful way of thinking about the words into here um, is um, into the possession of, into the name of. Um, this expression was used in banking and meant to the account of or into the possession of. It not only conveys that we are the possession of the triune God, it carries with it also the obligation to live as a child of God. As one scholar put it, the obligation of baptism is to give evil our back and to seek the kingdom of God in no other way than by the direction that sincere repentance shows us. Something that uh, Marion covered well for us in the catechism class this morning. So we are grafted into the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And for those of you who are looking for Trinitarian uh, emphases in the Gospels and in the Bible, here is one. We are grafted into the one name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A more clear Trinitarian reference there probably could not be. And then lastly, friends, comes the comfort emanating from the Commission. I like the way that that colloquial translation put it. It said, and look, I myself will be with you to the very end. That word behold is a camera swinger. It means that um, uh, the, the, the camera swings and gets your attention and we're to focus on the fact that Jesus is looking us in the eye as it were. And he's saying, look friends, it's okay. I'm going to be with you. And that is assuring words for sure. That assurance is uh, compounded by the presence of the Holy Spirit that's referred to in Acts. And as I come to uh, concluding reflections, I want to remind us of one other Old Testament passage that the Great Commission evokes, because it too is an encouragement. The famous scholars of Matthew, Allison, and Davies suggest, indeed, a primary link with Daniel 7, 13 to 14 here, but they also suggest a secondary link with the beginning of Joshua. And at the beginning of Joshua and the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is passing the torch on to Joshua. If Jesus is the new deified Moses and he's about to ascend, then we can see the parallel here. Here, Jesus is passing the torch on to us. So uh, allow me to read um, Deuteronomy uh, 31, 23. The Lord gave this command to Joshua, son of Nun, be strong and courageous for you will bring the Israelites into the land I promised you on oath, and I myself will be with you. Joshua 1 9. Joshua mentions also obedience to the law, and is perhaps even closer to Matthew 28 here in verse 7b of Joshua 1. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips." Meditate on it day and night, so you may be careful to do everything in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. I thought it was interesting. If we take that verse and substitute the words Master Jesus for Servant Moses, these could be the words to us. Be careful to obey all the law my Master Jesus gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate it on a day and night so that you may be careful to do everything in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. And notice how verse 9b ends. I've saved the best for the end. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Well, that would be a wonderful high note on which to end things but I thought it might be helpful as we conclude to ask ourselves, how dare we? Well, dare we not? But we can still ask, how dare we? And I just wanna suggest, and here we're sort of setting aside um, the sermon and I'm, I'm being far more anecdotal, so don't take this with the same authority that I was speaking of when I was preaching the word. But I wanna say that there are some ways in which I think we can practically implement the teachings of Jesus. If we only hang around with other Christians, or if we only hang around with mature Christians, you know, people on the board at church or whatever, we're not likely to be very effective disciple makers. Mix with new Christians, mix with unbelievers, get to know them, hang around with them. Jesus spent a lot of time in a boat on a lake in Galilee helping them get fish. How much does God need to collect fish from the Sea of Galilee? Uh, Not at all. What was the point? The point was he was with these people. Uh, He was living an incarnational, relational life with them. Soul-winning alone will not do it. Um, uh, It must be accompanied by discipleship-making. Otherwise, we end up um, um, raising deformed, malnourished uh, Christians. Um, So I have come from a denomination um, where... um, One of the things that terrified me more than anything else were lay delegates to synod. Synod would be an occasion when uh, the church would make decisions and lay delegates were sent to synod. And when I looked at some of the lay delegates went, I thought they'd never been discipled. They couldn't name two books of the Bible back to back. And here they are making decisions about the church. So for the welfare of the church and for the welfare of humanity, Jesus's words need to be taken to heart. And my friends, as we go and make disciples, know that you're empowered Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.